Hey everyone, and welcome to the Power Within You podcast. My name is Mum Tagera, and as well as being your host, I also run my own leadership coaching, facilitation, and course creation business. The reason why I created this podcast was because through the coaching, I realized that everyone I was speaking to had or was suffering from mental health issues, whether it be burnout, stress, anxiety, depression, and more. But what I also realized was that these issues weren't being talked about openly. This podcast is just one step to make mental health accessible to everyone, to bring information to one place, to hear the personal stories of people who come from all walks of life and how they've overcome adversity. The power with a new podcast is to hear expert advice, gain resources, make mental health easier to understand and be able to implement positive changes. But most importantly, to know that you're not alone, to know there is support, understanding and love out there for you. I'm delighted to introduce Thomas Armstrong to the Power Within You podcast. Thomas is an educator, psychologist, keynote speaker, writer, consultant and trainer with a focus on learning and human development. In this episode, we'll be speaking about his latest book and research on the myth of the ADHD child. It really bothered me, in fact, that these were kids that were fascinating in so many different ways. I had kids that started to tell stories, write stories the first day they got in, and then they would almost write novels by the end of the term. They were dancers, there were actors. I had a model for a large shopping concern. I had a psychic child. That was very interesting. I had a child who had the, uh, the national U.S. record in his age group for breaststroke in swimming and a lot of other kids like that. And yet all these kids were coming in being labeled as learning disabled or educationally handicapped or behaviorally disordered. We had a different group of labels back then, but you know, they were the same kind of issues and those kids would receive, you know, these labels, ADD, ASD, LD, etc. Were they around today in the schools? So this really bothered me. Why are kids with these gifts being pathologized. Many of them didn't like coming in because, you know, this is where all the goofy kids, all the crazy kids, you know, the the so-called retards are. And I never had a very good, you know, answer to give them. So this got me thinking about the needs of kids who learn differently, who behave differently, who attend differently. I think neurodiversity can be a new focus for special education so that when kids come in, the first thing that you do isn't try to find out what their disability is and then spend several hours every day focusing on it. But the first thing you're going to do is what are their gifts? What are their talents? What can they do really well? How can I take what they do really well and help them learn the things that they're having difficulty with? You know, just a whole different orientation with a different set of assessment tools and a different approach to teaching them. And um, that's partly what I'm pushing now is trying to get special ed programs to become current with the latest information. And uh, even the information we have about neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain is still available for new learning, you know, into, well, actually into old age, but for the most part into the early 20s, suggests that when we have kids, we've got them for a critical amount of time. And the, the choices that we make about what we're gonna use to help them learn or grow 
will determine who they're going to be when they become adults. So that's a tremendous responsibility. And the fact that special ed is sort of bogged down with all of these old tools. We should be helping kids from a fairly early age identify their gifts and then identify careers out there that make use of those gifts. Now we're finding that people who are on the spectrum have specific gifts that are needed in the information technology field. And, you know, I think this has happened in the UK and in America. I think it started with a company up in Denmark. Their job was to read computer code that other companies gave them. And it was very boring work for neurotypical people. But for people on the spectrum, one of their gifts is the ability to cue into small details. And their, another gift of theirs is the ability to work with systems rather than people. And so a system like a computer program and computer language. So this particular task marshaled all of their gifts and three quarters of their staff, as it turned out, was on the spectrum. They were intentionally hired because they were on the spectrum, which is a totally different view than we've had before. Before it was like hire the handicapped. Why? Well, because it's the moral thing to do because it's the legal thing to do. We have to do it. We have quotas. No. Now we've got a whole new approach with neurodiversity. You hire people on the spectrum because they do a better job than anybody else. And that's the kind of revolution, I think, that can take place at the adult level in terms of helping prepare youth for careers and make the transition from school to work. And there are just a lot of implications, very positive implications of neurodiversity at all stages of the lifespan. So that really got me thinking right from the start, even before ADHD was a term. And people get kind of shocked a little bit and maybe even a little angry sometimes when they read the title of my book, The Myth of the ADHD Child, because they think I'm saying that there's no ADHD symptoms, that these are just normal, focused, you know, relaxed kids who can, you know, just buckle down and do the work without any problem. I'm not saying that at all, because I, I worked with kids both in Canada and the parochial school system and in the U.S. in the public school system. With kids, all, all of my classes were with kids that had tremendous difficulty with behavior, with attention, with distractible minds, and, and um, some of the kids had conduct disorders and, and such. And so I obviously know that those symptoms exist. What I take issue with is the concept that there is something, a disorder called ADHD that is causing those symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and distractibility because there are a lot of other things that can cause those same symptoms. And, you know, the book goes through a lot of those. One thing, for example, is research has shown that the brains of kids who are diagnosed with ADHD develop perfectly normally. There's not a defective brain, but they develop two to three years later than the average individual, than the neurotypical child. Now, if they are maturing later, that means they're showing traits that are associated with younger kids. And of course, if, if you look at a baby, every baby has ADHD, right? Every baby, 
is totally looking around and they hear something and they and they're just you know hyperactive all over the place it's normal to be ADHD as a baby and then still as young children to be playful to be humorous to be you know and and I noticed that in my classes these kids were often like younger children and so these younger behaviors get then reinterpreted as signs of ADHD when in fact they're just really part of their nature and part of their developmental process which over time will iron itself out and that's what the research shows that you know a certain proportion of kids have been diagnosed with ADHD but by adulthood it's much smaller because those kids have matured their nervous systems have all been myelinated and all all the different things that need to happen I had a kid once in my class for special education and you know he was he was a very interesting kid very intelligent kid he'd spent time in Hong Kong I was giving him some nonsense words from one of these ridiculous tests and one of the nonsense words was Kowloon and he said oh yeah I lived in Kowloon <laughs> which is just outside of Hong Kong or maybe as part of Hong Kong anyway several years later I was teaching a course in human development and he popped up again and there he was and it was so interesting because as a young child or not a young child he was he was well he was about sixth grade I think when I was working with him he was you know he was all over the place now as a young adult he was still a little bit hyperactive you could tell but a lot of that had been turned into little mini movements so he'd settled down you know that's he gained control over those large motor movements and he was doing more of what most of us do especially if we're listening to something that's boring you know we're tapping our fingers we're tapping our toes you know we're moving our legs around under the desk where no one can see us and you know all that kind of thing so you know if we take a developmental view it's really inappropriate to label a lot of these kids ADHD and and one other wrinkle is that we're continually asking kids to do things at earlier and earlier ages that we used to have them do you know later on so we're asking a kindergartner to do what we used to ask first graders to do we're expecting preschool kids to do what kindergartners used to do kindergarten is no longer a children's garden which is the German translation it's you know get out the worksheets and learn how to read I mean the expectations have changed so here you've got kids who are normally younger than their years being asked to do things that would be developmentally inappropriate even if they were at their years so to speak and it's like they're caught between a rock and a hard place so that's just one piece of a huge mosaic of issues that are other ways in which the symptoms can come up that don't require the positing of a medical disorder called ADHD I'm just saying I'm not against the use of drugs I think that they're another tool 
in the range of strategies that can be used, I think we go to it too quickly without considering alternatives first. And if you don't have to take the drug, it's definitely better that you don't because it's got side effects, mostly minor side effects, but there are occasional major side effects on the heart, the, the bones, and there's even some uh, methylphenidate-induced psychoses, things like that, that rarely occur. But, you know, they suggest, it, you know, if you don't have to take it, then, uh, you know, don't take it. But you need alternatives. And that's why most of the book, that The Myth of the ADHD Child, the subtitle is 101 Ways to Improve Your Child's Behavior and Attention Span Without Drugs, Labels, or Coercion. So I've just got a lot of really great strategies that I think parents and teachers and doctors should consider first you know, before they consider the drug. And then if those things seem to not be working or working at all, then by all means, use the drugs. But maybe you don't have to use as much if you're using some of these alternatives. For example, if kids are out in nature, the research has shown that their symptoms decrease. Well, that makes nature a drug, doesn't it? And if nature's a drug, well, use that drug first. <laughs> And, and then if there's still, you know, some cause for concern, then bring in some drugs. Don't start with the drugs and then forget about nature. This is what drives me nuts in effect because all I'm asking is for parents to do things that are good for all kids. You know, things like getting together as a family, you know, to, to play games, to tell stories, getting out in nature together. Uh, getting enough sunshine, eating well. These are the things that we've lost as a culture. And it's like, it's, it seems to me very odd that our culture has lost all these things. And our response, instead of saying, well, we better get those back, our response is, no, there's a drug for that. There's a drug for coping for the fact that we don't have a very good culture, you know. And that just doesn't make any sense. That's, that's, that's bizarre. Well, I see ADHD as one kind of diversity within the broad range of neurodiversity. When I do my teaching, I focus on five diversities. I focus on ADHD, dyslexia, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, intellectual disabilities like Down syndrome and Williams syndrome, and social and emotional disorders like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So there are lots of other neurodiversities out there as well, but this, this takes in a rather large number of kids who are in the world of special education. And then I can talk about how, you know, and the, and the metaphor I like to use is, you know, take a calla lily. And, you know, in the medical model, the calla lily has pedal deficit disorder because it's just got the one beautiful pedal. But we don't say that. We, we appreciate the, the Galilee for what it is, for its beauty, for its uniqueness, for what it adds to the color of our lives. And that's the same approach we ought to take with our kids and with our teens and our adults, is not, not seeing them in terms of what they're missing, but seeing them in terms of who they are. And that includes, you know, I'm, I'm not a Pollyanna. I'm not saying, oh, well, let's just forget 
that a person with autism has difficulty with people and let's just focus on their systematizing and their focus on detail. I'm not saying that at all. Obviously a big part of helping individuals who are on the spectrum is, is to give them tools and better ways of interacting with others because that's an inevitable part of being in the world unless you're going to be a hermit on a mountain somewhere, which most people aren't. So the approach is to embody an understanding of them in terms of their gifts and their challenges and to be able to use tools that use their strengths to help them master their difficulties. So for people with Down syndrome, one of the gifts of people with Down syndrome is that they're clever mimics, they're, they're, they're great actors and they're very humorous in, ma in many cases and very personable, very charming in many cases. I mean, obviously I'm generalizing, but these are some of the things that people have noticed. So for a young child, you know, many people with Down syndrome have difficulty with logical uh, thinking, you know, logical mathematical intelligence to use Gardner, Howard Gardner's term. So one example of this using strengths to help with difficulties is have the child put on a puppet show where they tell the story of a math word problem. And so they're acting it out and they're enjoying that and they're also having to work out the math inside that. And so, you know, mixing and matching. Teaching a child who's been diagnosed, by the way, I wanna say something. I don't say the ADHD child or the child with ADHD. I try to say always the child who is diagnosed with ADHD. Because when we say the ADHD child, where's the ADHD? Is it sitting inside of them somewhere? And if we say the child with ADHD, I'm thinking, where's the ADHD? Has he got it in his pocket? Has he, has he got it in his rucksack? You know, it, it, it too closely identifies the, the, the uh, identity of the child, which to me is sacred, with this disorder. ADHD, after all, has three negatives in it. Deficit hyperactivity disorder. So do you really need three negatives closely associated with your identity. So what I say is the child who was diagnosed with ADHD, because that happened. That was a real social act that occurred. A doctor, a medical doctor, did in fact assign a diagnosis of ADHD to this child. So I can say it without concern, and I've created a, a, an insulation between the identity of the child and the, and the label itself. And to me, the, you know, this may sound academic, but it's not. From the child's point of view, you know, the, the words that we use to describe kids have a tremendous impact on them, and for good or for ill. And, you know, unfortunately what happens is a lot of times the child will be having this time doing the things he loves to do, and then he'll start hearing the adults whispering there's something wrong, there's something wrong, you know. And that's what they're hearing. The only part they're hearing is there's something wrong. There's something wrong with Adam. There's something wrong with Adam. And then, you know, things start happening. Like, we're going to take you to this man, and he's going to sit you across the table from him, and he's going to ask you some questions. Well, what's this for, you know? And some, it's scary, you know? And sometimes the uh, pe people try to come up with nifty ways of sugarcoating, you know, the, the medicine, you know, like we'll say, well, you know, your ADHD is like a car 
and your engine runs too fast and we're just going to take some car medicine and pour it in the engine so that it runs better you know and and we try to sugarcoat it in that way and i don't know what that sounds like to a child but to me it compares my mind to a machine and that can break down you know and i i, I don't want that kind of image running through my mind i'd much rather somebody say okay your your brain is like a rainforest and your the rainforest has all kinds of diversity of all kinds of lushness and so forth and so on and you can really grow your brain forest as you learn and as you master new things and as you get involved with your interests i mean that's a whole different way of approaching things it's not saying by the way, bud, you have a defective brain and here's the medicine that you have to take like you're sick. Isn't that what kids think? If I have to take a drug, I must be sick. Well, I think one that I like is martial arts training, particularly for boys, because martial arts training teaches respect for one's opponent. It teaches focus which is exactly what a lot of kids diagnosed with ADHD need. And it's something that boys especially esteem. And so they want to be like that. They learn these skills of inner control. I mean, isn't that what we're all about? So instead of a drug controlling them, they're controlling their own selves in this discipline that is very, you know, focused and, uh, and directed toward uh, helping one attain a, a sense of peace. And a related one is mindfulness meditation, which is a form of meditation where you just kind of <clears throat> sit and watch your breathing. And if things start to flow through your mind, you just notice what they are and then go back to your breathing. And then if they continue to float around, you just notice them again and you go back to your breathing. And you just do that the whole time you're doing it. I've been doing it for 30 years. The research on it is pretty powerful. And uh, the research for ADHD, for depression, uh, for, for several conditions. And to me, it's, it's like the wonder drug of the 2020s because it can, you know, it's essentially, it is a drug because we're, we're, we're using our mind to produce more uh, neurotransmitters that we need in order to feel a sense of calmness and focus. Early on when I was doing the first version of my book, I just kind of marveled at the fact that the whole ADHD field said nothing about meditation. Meditation is a many thousands year old practice to help people with their attention and their focus and they didn't know anything about it and that struck me as pathetic. So I should say the ADHD field has come along at least some of the individuals have people like Ned Hallowell for example has been part of the let's take a holistic approach and let's not get too hung up on the ADHD label. So that's good. Uh, a magazine is being published in the U.S. called Attitude, A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E, which has lots of great strategies. They've included some of the strategies for my book. I think there's a lot more happening in the sort of the self-help 
area of ADHD than there is in the special education programs in the public schools. Ultra-processed foods are not helpful for our brains and that if we use a, a better diet, in fact the best diet according to dietitians these days is the Mediterranean diet, a diet that's high in uh, whole grains, legumes, seeds, nuts, fish on a you know, couple times a week, um, lean meats occasionally, extra virgin olive oil for everything. And so, you know, a, a diet that a, approaches that kind of diet is seen to reduce the symptoms of ADHD. Another thing is sunshine. You know, being out in nature, getting enough sunshine. If you look at a map of the United States, and see where mo most of the sunshine is. It's in the southwest where California and Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada and those states are. Then you look at a map of the incidence of ADHD. The places with the lowest incidence of ADHD are the places with the most sunshine. So getting your kid out, you know, using sunblocker of course, but getting them out. You know, one kid said uh, to this individual who coined the phrase nature deficit disorder, he said, I like to play inside because that's where the electrical sockets are. You know, plug in his video games. Reduce the amount of media in all forms, from social networks to iPhones to TV and movies and everything. Because the average teenager spends seven hours a day on screens. And that doesn't even include the time he's using computers at school. Can you believe that? Seven hours plus. And this does something, I've got a whole chapter on it in the myth of the ADHD child. This dysregulates their dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter in our brain that anticipates rewards. You know, it's like the phone's ringing. Oh, I wonder who that's going to be. Maybe it'll be, you know, somebody offering me a million dollars as, you know, a part of some publicity campaign. And that's what, of course, media does, you know, social networking. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Did I get a like? Scrolling, scrolling. Oh, they got more likes than I have, you know, scrolling, scrolling. And each time we do that, it triggers a dopaminergic reaction in our brain. And so we're kind of dopamine addicts. And it's no coincidence that one of the major areas of concern with kids who are diagnosed with ADHD is that they have dysregulation in the dopaminergic system, um, particularly a large areas of the frontal lobes, which again are where the executive functions are, and another area of concern with kids who are diagnosed with ADHD. So less media, media diets, you know, would be crit critical. You know, the funny thing is, parents don't have to do very much. Just give their kids what all kids got in the 1950s. <laughs> and, and look what the ADHD rates were back then. Thank you for joining this week's episode of The Myth About the Neurodivergent Child. And please do check out Thomas's book, The Myth of the ADHD Child. I look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>